0: You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety: Yours and theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now, your host, Steve Kutz.
1: Well, folks, I'm joined by the delightful uh, Deborah Paget, and Deborah has written a whole slew of books, and she's a she's a John Maxwell facilitator and coach, among many other things. And uh, we had scheduled this for a while. She's got a brand new book out called Lead Like a Woman. And we're actually going to be getting into that book. I am excited, Deborah, as a dude, <laughs> to get into your book, uh, Lead Like a Woman. But not long before this interview, Deborah sent across to me just a real simple PDF. And it's basically 10 ways whites and blacks can bridge the racial divide. So I reached out to Deborah and I said, I would love us to start here. Because uh, obviously I'm a I'm a white guy, and not only am I a white guy, I'm an Aussie. I'm particularly white. Deborah is African American. Um, so Deborah, I'm going to just start right out of the gate. I know you're familiar with the podcast. We don't break yeah. the ice. We don't. Uh, <laughs> we get we get right to it. What is it that you, as an African American woman, wished that me, as a white male leader? knew about life that you think I don't know
0: well let me first say thank you for having me here today uh, uh, what I wish you would hear is that it's just to hear my story I don't want I don't let me tell you what infuriates me and and some most black people I won't speak for everybody but it's to, it's to have your story minimized and the minute I hear somebody say there's no systemic racism you'd have to say that to somebody who was 14 years old who uh, I w- I was 14 years old when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed so I knew what how life changed i i knew what it meant to see my father not having to go to the back of the restaurant to pick up his hamburger because blacks couldn't order in the front and all of of a sudden all of the public facilities were integrated Uh, now we don't we can use the restroom that everybody else uses and you can sit at the counter so it's those kinds of things that um we just want you to hear our story and get to let's get to know each other because that really is the key steve it has to start on an individual level it really does yeah
1: just one-on-one human to human yeah, it, it is fascinating. I, I do have a handful of folks mostly on social media as I think about it and and honestly some in my church, they'll say something like, um, well there's no there's no systemic racism today. what they're trying to claim is that that there's no law that permits it is what they're saying, which is even that is obviously uninformed. Yeah. Yeah. What they're forgetting is what you just told us is you remember it yourself. You remember being a child and a teenager, pre-civil rights. Right. Just, I'd like to do a couple of things. I'd like you to take us back to when you were 14 and what is it that you knew that shifted? But then I'm also interested in hearing Deborah today. I, I think anybody who's looking around knows we are still profoundly broken as a society. We still have, profoundly systemic brokenness when it comes to racial equality. Mm-hmm. But let's start from when you were 14. What did that mean to you?
0: Well, the laws changed the behavior of people around us, but it didn't change the beliefs. So it took another uh, a while. But, and, and and we're still there in terms of people saying, yes, we are equal. I, I'm not sure where how I can say it goes back to slavery time because we really aren't, let me say me, I am not stuck in what happened in 1865 or 1609 when the slaves were brought here. I am distressed that 411 years later, things haven't changed much. Uh, We've changed some, but that we're still having this conversation. Why are we still having this conversation? And when you see people protesting, it's the the anger, I always say anger is an emotion of protest. And it's a secondary emotion. I, I'm not just protesting what you did, but I'm I'm protesting being dismissed and being uh, just ignored and, and not being judged by my the content of my character or my abilities. And so y- you'd have to have lived in this black skin to know that. So I don't expect white people to understand that. I just don't need you to ignore it. But when you, if I take you back to that time, the schools were segregated. Uh, most of the books that we got were used, had been used by this previous, uh, the, the white school. And they, it had their name st- stamped in it, Palestine High school. So everything, we were second secondary citizens, we we're just second class citizens. Interestingly, in my hometown, we didn't have that, we didn't have racial clashes. We just accepted accepted that as the status quo. But as you begin to see other things around you and as Martin Luther King began to make it known that, you know, discrimination is real and that we should do something about it, it changed the mindset. But I knew that education was going to be the key. So I graduated my last year of high school. They consolidated the schools and the white school and the black school became one. And everybody said, you know, if you had stayed at the black school, you would have been the valedictorian of the class, but don't even think about it now. Well, guess what? I was valedictorian of the class. Well, that gave me hope and it gave a lot of other people hope. Maybe there's a chance, you know, maybe we're just smart enough. And I have to tell you, Steve, all of my life and a lot of black people have this testimony. You were always told that you're going to have to be twice as good to get half the credit. Now, I, I say that and I and I'm glad I'm talking to you, a white man, because I'm tired of white people being in guilt about something they didn't do. You see, for instance, like you didn't own a slave. (laughs) You're not old enough. So you didn't own a slave, slave. but you don't have to be apologetic and, and, and guilty about what your forefathers did. We just need you not to perpetuate it. And so yeah. you see what I'm saying, and so that's oh, what's been yeah. happening. We it's been perpetuated, and that's that's the distressing part. If like if you stop thinking like that and don't pass it on to your children, because it really does have to be taught. You know, you you see little kids play together and they don't separate unless somebody told them that one's inferior over there. So it was it was this kind of thing. Went to school a college that was known for its racist policies, but also known for having a great uh, passing rate on the CPA exam. I am a CPA, and uh, so I went there, but it was so racist. It was just um, amazing. They've changed a lot now. I just had an interview with them the other week and I'm so proud of that school, but it, it was that constant being said, you're not good enough. I, my last year in college, my college professor called me in my English professor. And he said, you and Miss Patmore have tied for the A in the class. I'm going to reexamine you to see which one of you would get the A. I got the B, but I never saw my score. It's those subtle things like that, that build up in people. It didn't build up in me because I have a higher power that I answer to. And I'm totally convinced that nobody can thwart God's plan for my life. That, that just energizes me, keeps me positive. I've never been bitter. I stand on the scriptures. And the one I'm standing on with that is Isaiah 14, 27. It says, behold, the Lord has purposed. Who can thwart him? Who? Name somebody. What white person? What black person? What circumstance? Nobody can thwart God's purpose for my life. So I've had a pretty good life in ignoring the racism, uh, just going forward, knowing that in everything that happens, God has a plan. <laughs> he has a plan. Yep. That's where I am.
1: Oh, so good. Uh <laughs> I feel like in my own journey, it's been a two-stage process. So I went to graduate school in the late 1990s. And I remember it was a predominantly white school, but it was very broad thinking. And I went to class and the New Testament professor was Ethiopian. His name is Kip Delia Lolia, Whoa. a fantastic, great human being. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, he looks at us and he basically says, Well, I tell you what you don't need is another book by a white guy. And so he, we started in South America, and we went through James Cone, Martin Luther King, and then um, we chased liberation theology. We did womanist theology, Deborah. Um, wow, uh, amazing! Um, the 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 Hagar tradition, just mm-hmm. in, and and it was the first time as a white suburban guy that I began to be exposed to the concept of white privilege, systemic racism, and I think what was most humbling for me was the things that almost every black person I talked to just knew that I didn't know. Now, obviously I'm an Australian. So some of that American history, I gave myself a pass like sure. Emmett Till. I, I didn't know about Emmett Till, but then like mm. redlining. Oh yeah. Yeah. When did you learn about redlining?
0: Well, I can, I experienced it as a victim, but I I knew about it before, but my husband and I lived in a fairly affluent neighborhood and we wanted to, and a house came up for sale in that same neighborhood and we tried, we wanted to buy it and they just kept blocking our credit for no reason whatsoever. And someone kind of gave us the the eye and said, listen, it's racism. And so you're going to have to take the, your application over here. They just don't want you to have more property like that. And it's, you know, and I know other people who've been, who suffered from that. So, you know, it, it is what it is and it, it, and we just wanted to stop. You know, what can you say? I I keep telling all the black people, stop wishing for a better past. It's time to stop rehearsing the ills of the past, except to the extent that we need to stay motivated. So this never happens again. But we just got to we just need the present to change. I think you see the marching stop if you saw justice uh, when people are killed and, you know, black men are killed and all of that. It's just you know what? It's almost. It's almost debilitating to get up and hear about it, but then you oh. keep saying, you know, because I, I, I told my husband the other day, to some extent, we live in a bubble. He and I, we, we kind of live in a bubble. We're in a, you know, gated community, blah, 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 paid our dues. Nobody gave us anything any of that, but still there are so many people who just can't with this shutdown and all of that pa- grandparents who are raising kids, p- people, parents in prison, you know, and so these grandparents have to try to learn technology. It's just a mess. It's, it's just a mess.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, I, it occurs to me we should just define redlining um, for people who may not be familiar now. Obviously, it's no longer legally yeah, legal.
0: Committed. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, and I, I'm not going to be the mansplainer to the woman who wrote Lead Like a Woman. So <laughs> would you mind telling us what redlining is?
0: Oh, sure. That's where you identify an area that's predominantly minority, which for the lenders, banks do that. And then they'll say, don't lend within these areas. There's a don't lend within the boundaries of this red line. And that's that's why they call it redlining. It's just like, nope, you're not we're not going to make any loans in that area for redevelopment, even for housing or if somebody if somebody comes in and applies. We're just not going to finance that, you know, and that keeps people from saying don't sell to blacks because you just won't you just won't fund their loans to do so.
1: Yeah. The average African-American or person of color would have to have cash to be able to Absolutely. purchase, today, which none of us have. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so then, for me, that was late '90s, and I felt like, okay, I've now been exposed to this thing. I remember it because I'm an Australian. I chased Aboriginal theology, and I, I continued to read James Cone and and think broadly. But um, the next shift to, for me was Charlottesville, Ooh. and I remember being shocked at the overt racism in Charlottesville, and then humbled. When I reached out to my African American sisters and brothers, at that point I was part of a, a state clergy alliance, and it was multi ethnic and multi faith. It was really wonderful. That's good. Yeah, and um, of course, n- of course, none of my African American sisters and brothers were surprised.
0: Oh yeah,
1: and right, <laughs> but I, That's but what I next, was next. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, I, I remember uh, one amazing African American sister, a, a local preacher, she and I were teaching our sons to drive at the same time, mm. 16-year-old boys. And she was talking with tears about how obsessive she was about checking brake, light, brake lights and headlights before her son would go out. And I was saying to her, it's, it's never crossed my mind. Like if the police pull Bryson over, it's just 10 and 2. And and—and then uh, African-American gentleman asking us how many times in our life we've heard the phrase, you fit the description.
0: Oh, yeah. Company. which
1: I've heard, I've heard zero times mm. for myself. And the African-American man had heard somewhere between 30 and 50 times.
0: Oh, absolutely. My husband's been yeah. in that position thrown on the ground. Uh, well, you fit the description and not, not an apology later or anything, just, well, you know, they call it in. Oh, yo, no, that's not him. Okay. You know, it's and we and we give our kids these lectures. We said when the police stop you. I mean, we complete with body language, put both hands on the steering wheel up, whatever they ask for. Just just comply. Don't say, why am I being stopped? Just comply. The goal is to get home at the end of the day. So just I always say, don't give them any lip. Just whatever they ask for. Well, there are some men who just say, no, I'm a man. And they, they're going to have to explain to me. It's like, no, just if you like living, just just comply. <laughs> Just come. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I have to say so, something funny though, Steve. I was pulled yeah. over too last Christmas and I had just moved to this area which is predominantly white and the guy pulled me over because I was looking at my phone but I wasn't on it. And when he pulled me over, I had my hands on the wheel and I was overdoing it. I just really made my eyes really wide and I said, "What?" Happened? <laughs> 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 you know, I was, I was playing it out to the nth degree cuz we just had an accident incident and he said, "May I see your registration?" And I said, Oh, Lord. I said, it's over there, over there. And I nodded my head towards the glove compartment. And he's, he's like, OK, I said, you want me to get it? He's like, yeah. oh, Lord, no. I said, OK, I'm reaching for the <laughs> registration. Oh,
1: <my laughs> man.
0: It's, it's, it's that crazy. But let me tell you, you almost have to do that in some areas. And my area is one of them. So I'm like, I'm not giving anybody any lip. That's like, yes, sir, officer, sir, 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 sir. <laughs>
1: I mean, you know, on the one hand, Deborah, I, I really, I, I really, I'm enjoying how much fun you're having with it. But it's it's better than the alternative, which is to look right at it, because what you're explaining to your children is something I've never had to explain to my children, which yeah. is you you are teaching your children how to diminish themselves yeah. in order to survive.
0: And, and if survival is the key, then so be it. You know, and maybe one day it will change. But it, that, it, that is the key. Listen, you have to understand that in the United States, the police department started as a result of men being freed from slavery and they wanted to get them back into slavery. So every man, every black man who didn't have papers on him that showed that he had a signed contract. With the master, any master, then he would be picked up. They hired people to do that. That was the beginning of the police department. If you don't believe it, look up the word peonage laws, P-E-O-N-A-G-E, peonage laws. That's where they originated with them hiring whites to come, even from another state, to come and arrest every black man who didn't have a contract that's saying he would we'd be working for a white former slave owner. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. But listen, I, I don't. And the reason I don't talk about this a lot, it's only in recent months, because I feel that people feel too much guilt. It's like I did it, you know, and I understand because let me tell you, Steve, When whenever I hear a mass shooting or something, it's terrible what I think. The first thing I think is, God, I hope it wasn't a black person who did the shooting. I mean, I really should just be concerned about anybody being shot. Right. But I'm thinking that's just going to perpetuate the hate against black people. So, Lord, please don't let that be a black person who did the shooting. That's how yeah. crazy it is.
1: Yeah, I I think the PDF you sent me, um, which we'll make available, if if it's sure. okay with you, sure. I'll, I'll post it as a download on the show notes. Um, one of the steps you talk about, you have 10 steps for white people, right. 10 steps for black people. Right. One of the steps you talk about for white people is the idea of not feeling guilty, but actually moving into action. Uh, after George Floyd, I, I sat down with some friends, just for further understanding and listening. I, I ran into two things. One is something in me. And one was something where I think I have more to learn. The thing in me was, I don't think white people are going to change until it costs us something. Absolutely. What can we do? Because awareness is one thing. Protesting is one thing. What can we actually do that will cost us something that will actually bring systemic change?
0: Well, I think you got to be proactive. You can't just be, just say I'm not a racist. You got to be actively Anti-racism. You, you, we, we need allies. We need people who will speak up for blacks. I am so heartened, Steve, by the cultural mix you see in the in the marches, especially in a place like Oregon, where it's, it's predominantly white and you know and only like five percent blacks, but most of the protesters are white. It's so unfortunate, though, that these infiltrators are coming in and making it look like the peaceful prote- uh, protesters are bad people, but they are not. If if if, if, if we don't do that. You know, there's a slogan, no justice, no peace. We need to keep those marches going, but we've got to find some way to get those infiltrators out of there because that's who's wreaking the havoc. But I, it's just, you know, we, we need white people to just, again, be proactive, uh, whatever that looks like, offer to help to hear your story. I'm, I appreciate you having me on the show. That's a step. You know, we just need you to be proactive, look for ways to help black people and then get to know them. Listen, and the churches are the most segregated entities. And so why don't you reach out to other black pastors and say, let's integrate. Whenever COVID lets us back together, <laughs> let's, <laughs> <laughs> you know, let's see if we can find some... Fellowship. Let's find ways to get to know each other. Let's let's understand these cultural differences. Cause there are cultural differences, but we have so much more in common. We really do. I have a lot of white friends. And this is what I find. This is what I find. If you don't have white friends, you have a very negative attitude towards whites. If you don't have black friends, you are so in the dark about what black people go through. And so you'll say, why don't they just pull themselves up by their bootstraps and stop all of this? You know? It's like, well, don't look now, but some blacks don't have the boots. <laughs>
1: Right. See what I'm saying. Well, and, and so that leads to the second step. I've, I, I would also want to caution our listeners because I've I've run into a number of African-Americans who just have a straight up fatigue at after each incident, their phone <laughs> calling, uh, you know, ringing. Yeah. And now there's this implied, I mean, it's well-meaning, you know, white people wanting to follow your guidance and listen and learn, but there's an, there's an implied expectation that now you're obligated to teach us something that we really should know.
0: Well, I, I I don't well maybe you should know, but I don't, I never get stuck in shouldville. I call it. If you don't know, then you just you know it's incumbent upon me to tell you. I've been like okay. this all my life. I went to work for a company once. And I was an affirmative action hire. And I'm, I'm not sure if your audience knows what that was or is, but it's, you know, where you have to have a black in a certain position, especially if you would have uh, government contracts because they were so, you know, so discriminatory. So they put me in a high level position, but they had to get me a tutor because I didn't know the industry or the job. Here's the bottom line. My first week there, nobody asked me to lunch. They were just like looking at the affirmative hire girl. Well, I'm, you know, I'm I'm very shy, not. And so <laughs> I, when I saw people gather at the elevator, I just got my purse on my arm one day and I said, Hey, do you guys mind if I join you? And they said, of course not. Well, who's going to say yes, we mind, but they got to know me. I said, they're going to have to know that I'm not an angry, hostile black person because most white people will assume that if they don't know you and you're quiet and because you think everybody's rejecting you because you've always been rejected, it starts a vicious cycle. So I said, I'm going to let them know I'm friendly, I'm fine and I'm friendly. And I know what I'm doing here. Eventually I will. (laughs) And so we had a great time. When I left there, I had five goodbye parties. (laughs) I loved it. See, it, it it goes both ways. And that's why on my list of 10 things whites can do and 10 things blacks can do, I tell blacks, really, make sure you integrate, you know, be proactive in that. Initiate it. Don't sit there and say they should talk to me because they're scared, too. Right. They're scared of being rejected, misunderstood. We're scared of being rejected, misunderstood, whatever. And so I just I say, everybody, make it incumbent upon yourself that I am going to cross the line and I'm going to integrate this environment or whatever. And I'm going to ask the questions. See, most of us don't mind if you ask our questions, like tell me what was your wh- how how were you raised? Yeah, what your was story? your experience? Yeah, what yeah. was your experience? You know, it's okay to ask that. I'm I'm happy to tell you. I'm happy to tell you.
1: Deborah, thank you so much for just giving us the time, at least on what I think is one of the most important topics right now. Oh yeah. Uh, We had originally scheduled you to come on to talk about this wonderful new book, Lead Like a Woman. Oh yeah. Before we get to the book, you've got twelve traits that a woman should really make use of, and then twelve um tendencies. Tendencies. Thank you. (laughs) Twelve tendencies that you think it'd be better for a woman to shed. Right. Um, before we get to that, how did you get into leadership coaching?
0: Well, I, you know, a lot of times you lead by default. I think I've always been a leader, even as a little girl. They say you're bossy. Of course, they never tell a little boy he's bossy. But no, that's I, right. <laughs> But I've I've been in leadership positions. I was a vice president in Universal Studios. I've led um, a large group at uh, a company, was called Hughes Aircraft, a billion dollar space division. So I've had leadership positions and they've always been uh, positions that were unpopular because if you're over the money, most people don't like you. And uh, so I thought, okay. And then I took John Maxwell's training. Just one of the best uh, training modules ever, and yes. so um, so I took that. but I wasn't really trying to write this book. I mean, sometimes a project calls you, God calls you to a project. So I read that it was going to take two hundred years for women to achieve gender equality. I'm thinking like, oh, that's too long, I don't have that long. I'm already seventy <laughs> <So, laughs> but I'm thinking, but we're already we're already programmed, we're born with God has given us inherent traits that would cause us to excel. In leadership, and when you look at them, these are the traits that are causing people, co- companies' bottom lines to grow. I mean, for instance, one of them is being collaborative. That is in a woman's nature. That's in a woman's nature to be collaborative. We love working together, being a team, and all of that. We're we're intuitive. We're nurturing. We like to develop people. Hey, I tell women, bring all of your womanhood to the table. You don't have to act like a man and be strong and cold and all that. That that's that is that working for you? <laughs> <laughs> so I just believe in bringing my entire womanhood to the table and it has worked for me. It has worked for me and it works for anybody who will try it. So that's what I have. The 12 traits, then the important thing to remember, bring them to the table, don't hide them, but manage them because all of them, each trait that I talk about, Steve, if you over, overprocess it, you, it becomes a liability instead of an asset. For instance, you can be so nurturing until you become mothering. So now yeah. you, you, you've gone beyond helping somebody to develop to causing them to be enabled to enabling them to be mediocre. So I'm I'm in the book. I show you how not to do that. But I'm, yeah,
1: how to not cross the line.
0: Yeah, but the the second part of the book is the part I like best because these are the tendencies that women engage that that sabotage their progress you know even just not even having executive presence i see women sabotage their executive presence by even dressing too suggestively you know okay you want you know what do you want to be known for you know what do you want to be known for so i want women to be strong and speak up ask for what they want i do that and you don't have to have delegated authority to do that i i i love the bible and i was been recently reading about this woman in second samuel 20 that when this mean Gosh, commander of, of uh, Davis Army came and he was about to destroy a city trying to find this rebel. And this woman comes out and she says, come over here and talk to me. Wait a minute. That's not how we do things here. They say, so I'm just list- looking for a rebel. I, I want to get him out. If you give him, she said, we'll throw his head over. We'll throw his head over. the wall." <laughs> I don't think of, Who put you in charge of anything? But she yeah. took the authority. Because sometimes I say you got to. it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. <laughs> sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. And then she went and coll- collaborated. I love that story because it's, it's such a story of strength and grace. You know, she says, that's not how we do things here. You know, we are peace loving and you shouldn't be trying to destroy our city. I mean, she had the guy backpedaling. He says, he's I'm not trying to do that. I'm j- I just want this rebel, you know. But I like it that she saved the city and she never had to burn her bra. <laughs> She didn't have to rise up like a man. She just said, this is what we're going to do. And she went to the people and said, listen, the Bible says she went in her wisdom to the people and they agreed with her and they threw the rebel's head over the wall and the city was saved. I mean, isn't that a great yeah. story?
1: Oh, it's, so, it's fantastic. And I think you're a fantastic storyteller. So that <laughs> certainly helps. One of the things I appreciate is early on in the book, I, don't, I think it was in the introduction, you you unapologetically say, look, I'm going to make generalizations, which of course means it's not always true. But I do think that then gives you freedom to say, here are the 12 traits, here are the 12 tendencies, and it saves you from having a nuance and apologize. You've already mentioned a couple of the traits like nurturing and collaboration. Right, right. Give us one more trait that you think that a woman brings to any organization that that makes them more helpful than a man in that same situation?
0: Well, we tend to be communicative. Now, you know, we like to talk. And, and, and especially- I've
1: heard the rumor. <laughs>
0: And especially now we need leaders to be communicative. We know that there's a lot of anxiety. We need to know what's going on. You know, give it to us straight. Tell us what you're doing to help us. Tell us what we can do. That's what people need now. And that is just the right up a woman's alley to communicate in whatever, by whatever means to say, this is where we're going. I worked at a company once and I was over the finances, a major ministry. And uh, when I left, some people said, oh, we hate you're gone because now we don't know anything. We don't know what's going on. We're kept in the dark. I said, listen, the only things that grow well in the darkest mushrooms, (laughs) you know, you need to keep people informed. And so that's one of the traits that a woman can be communicative. We don't mind being that way. We don't try to play it close to the best. It's like, here's what's going on. And that's what we need people to do, especially now, Steve. That's one of the traits. Yeah.
1: Give us a couple of tendencies that you think a woman needs to be careful of.
0: Well, one of the things she has to do is have the confidence. We tend not to have the confidence. I read a a stat that said men will apply for a job if they have 60 percent of the qualifications. A woman won't apply unless she has 100 percent. Women suffer a lot from lack of confidence. But I think it's because of the culture, because it's not ladylike to be that confident. You know what I mean? As,
1: yeah, you get called bossy.
0: Yeah, you get called bossy and you try to, you know, oh, she's trying to act like a man. But you can be confident. You don't have to stand up and say, I'm confident. You can just put forth your ideas with such conviction and with such research. It's already done. Here's an example. So a lot of women, when they put forth an idea and they'll say, well, I'm, this may not work or this may not be right. It's like, why qualify? If you know you studied it and you know what to say, why don't you say hey, here's what I'd like to put on the table. If we do it this way, I believe this will be the outcome. What's wrong with saying that? You see? And so we've been taught that we need to be passive like that. And that's why sometimes we don't get into the high profile positions because we just don't believe within ourselves that we have what it takes. I think most women have bought into, not most, but too many women have bought into the concept that leadership is a man's domain. It is not. We were born to lead. I love it in the Garden of Eden. When God gave them the mandate, he said, go and you know multiply and replenish the earth. He said it to them. Neither one of them could do that independent of each other. Wouldn't that have been funny? <laughs> they had to work together. And that's why this book is important, because it's not about men against women and no more hand to hand combat. It's about hand-in-hand cooperation because we have to work together. We need what men bring to the table as well, and they need what we bring to the table.
1: Right, and I think you actually mentioned early on that you're not interested in kind of the man-bashing pendulum swing. Yeah, you're interested in a genuine collaboration where everybody brings what they have to the table. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I I really appreciated that. Our our church has had male and female elders and pastors for uh, 15 years or so.
0: That's great. Congratulations.
1: I I agree, yeah. um, and it is it's great to see firsthand when men and women work together. When you create a culture where men can show up the way they are with their strengths and women can show up with their strengths, and they're seen as equal contribution, yeah. Um, boy, we're just a, the fabric of our culture is so much stronger.
0: Well, you said the key word there, and we have to be culturalized to do that. Uh, and 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 if in that culture, it's it's unusual to see a woman in a high position sometimes people don't want to accept it right away. In my, in my culture that I grew up in my church, not the one I'm in now, but I was the C- chief financial officer. Well, they hadn't had a woman in that position. And so when I left, everybody was like, it's like, Oh, the women are now lost because we don't have a woman. It's like, no, no, no. Somebody that's going to aspire to that. You know, yeah. but if you, if you, if you make it the norm, then, then, you know, other women would look at that and say, Hey, there's a possibility for me. There are a lot of good women out there that need men to support them to say, Hey, I'm listening to you. I I, I'm for you and to advocate for them, even when you see a man and men do this, but I don't think they do it intentionally. A woman can put, put forth an idea and it gets a warm reception. Then the man comes right behind her, the same idea. And everybody says, that's a great idea. Have you seen that, Steve? Have you, have you ever noticed that happen? Have
1: you? Afraid so. Yeah, afraid so. <laughs> and, and, also, and also, of course, the very infamous mansplaining that happens yeah, so much. Right,
0: right, right. Yeah, exactly. So, but I teach women how to take their thought back, how to take their idea back from that kind of a situation without being a mess, how to have strength and grace. So here's my, here's my example. This is a freebie for all you women who are listening. (laughs) When, when Jim takes my idea, I look at him and say, thank you so much for your, for your support on that. When I initially mentioned it, I, I only knew this much, blah, 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 but since then I've also found out. So thank you so much.
1: (laughs) I'm not sure if this is a an, uh, a racial situation, but I've noticed like I follow a, a variety of people on Twitter, and there are a number of African American women on Twitter that I follow that comment on one particular African American person who claims itself as a thought leader. I'm not going to name him. I'm not okay. looking to cause trouble. Okay. but they're basically saying, "Look, he's famous for stealing our ideas and then giving credit." It does. Is that something unique in African American? heritage or it's just across the board no
0: I found it that to be more prevalent in in, in white men honestly
1: white community I,
0: I, well, because, I mean because I was in corporate America where there were more white men so you know <laughs> maybe that's why yeah. I found it to be more prevalent there but it's a it's a man thing and I don't think I don't think that I don't really think it's intentional. I just think that yeah. they know they can get by with it. And so if you don't if you don't put up a fuss about it, you've got to learn how to put up a fuss because even society, no society is ready. for that strong, combative woman, that just doesn't work. And you just got to know that's your reality. So you got to find a better way to do it. You got to take that Abigail approach. Remember when she approached David and said uh, when David was going to kill her husband because he didn't give them food? Yeah. she he said, listen, you know, she just she just ran it down to him. You know, you you got guys taking you places. You don't want this on your hands. You got to learn how to use words. And that's important. You got to use learn how to use the right words, you know. And so that's what I'm teaching women to do. Learn how to be powerful with your words, but not your attitude. You don't need an attitude and and to feel like I'm so now I'm, I'm so victimized now. I just I, I'm just so demoralized by it. i am never demoralized by that. If something didn't happen that I thought should have happened, if I thought I, I should have gotten that position or whatever, I'll just ask the boss. I'll just say, listen, I'm really disappointed about that, but I need you to tell me exactly what I need to do so that next time it comes up, I'm ready. And I want your yeah. support on that. <laughs> Keep me that attitude. This,
1: yeah, I'm, I'm just listening to you, this idea of, of men taking credit for women's ideas and then the way you just coached women to reclaim the credit. Right. Let, let me test a the theory with you, Deborah. I, I'm thinking as a man, I think, I mean, some of us are just dishonest and some of us need to be the center of attention. I think a lot of men carry an unending pressure to have a fresh idea. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you carry as well? I'm wondering if that's some, I'm not excusing it, but I'm wondering if that's some of where this is coming from.
0: Well, it could be because there's a lot of pressure on men to be men, to be the leaders. You mean after all. It's exhausting, Deborah. It's exhausting. see it. I see my husband doing it. I said, you are wearing yourself out. Who said you have to do all of that? You know, he takes the cars to the shop. He takes them to the car wash. He really tries to be the man. And I'm thinking like, you are just wearing yourself out because I could drive that car to the car wash. Yeah, You know, but men do have that because, see, men are equally under pressure to perform. So now we have a woman coming here threatening some of that. But we need to all take a deep breath, especially those who know God. Nobody has to win like that. We know we're all working together. That's yeah, what it takes. Unity yeah. is what God commands the blessing.
1: So yeah, that's it's important. not a it's not a zero sum game. No, yeah, there's not. there's room at the table for everybody.
0: Everybody, you can't have that scarcity mindset to think it's not. And especially, I hate to see that among Christians because you know what, our destiny is set. I, I I believe that, and the psalmist says, "All the days ordained for me were already written in His book before one of them came to be." I like that. I like that.
1: Well, and one king's enough, right? As as a follower of Jesus, we have one king that we all equally serve.
0: Yeah, and we get that ego off the throne, and we're gonna all be okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that's the that's real thing.
0: The ego is on the throne. It's like when people try to perform. I want to do this, so I, I. There's just too much I going on. Too much I going on. Yeah, <laughs> love it.
1: Yeah. Okay. So if you're ready, uh, ready, if you're ready to brace yourself like a woman, Deborah. Okay. I I'm going to gently inflict upon you <laughs> the gauntlet of anxiety questions that I ask every guest. Now you can pass or play. So I'll throw the question to you. You can give it a shot, and you could say, eh, "No, let's try another one." I've got eight questions. I usually choose any four or five. So okay. It's okay if you don't want to uh, answer any of these. I don't All
0: care. right. I would do them all. <laughs> okay.
1: Uh, my experience is that every leader has a certain kind of person or a certain kind of situation that's generally going to generate anxiety in the leader. What would be a person a, a personality trait or a situation where would that would make you anxious or where you're going in, you'd know, oh, I'm gonna be anxious about this?
0: When I have to encounter a person who's argumentative and I know that I have putting I'm putting forth some good ideas and that person just likes to butt for the for the sake of butting. So that makes me anxious because I need to keep moving. I don't need to spend time on somebody resisting my ideas when I know it's a good idea.
1: Okay, very good. Um, It's also often common for a leader to be the last person in the room to know when they're not okay. What signs do you give off where other people know you're not okay? Maybe your husband or loved ones, where other people know that you're not okay before you know?
0: Probably when I start complaining about everybody i i we we kind of have a little rule in our house if if everybody's wrong it the the problem's me so when i i don't like in i'm critical of everybody and everything and in fact i have a a little phrase i use my i'll tell my husband. I hate everybody. Well, he knows I don't mean I hate everybody. That just means everybody's on my nerves today. So that means I need to stop. And I and and you know what? And some or he'll say that. He'll say, okay, okay, let's just focus in on ourselves, you know. So that that's kind of my sign. When I'm critical of everybody in my circle of interaction, that's a sign that something's wrong with me.
1: That's great. Kind of related to that one, Deborah. When I was a trauma chaplain, I was on the code team. And so my job was to run into the room with the doctors and nurses when someone's heart stopped. And they'd be working on the patient, trying to revive them with the paddles and everything. I'd be right outside the the room with the family waiting. I know it was rough. Wow. And um, after one one particularly harrowing code encounter, the doctor came out, he pulled me aside because I was a student. And he said, hey, next time somebody's heart stops, first you take your own pulse.
0: Mm. You
1: just take a little moment just to take care of yourself and that gives you the power to walk in. What's this one or two practices that you have that help you take care of yourself when you need a little extra?
0: I practice spiritual breathing, spiritual breathing, I call it. I inhale the peace of God and very slowly, like on the count of seven, seven seconds, like and I exhale anxiety. I do that. I'll do that about 10 times. Anxiety is expecting a negative outcome. The Bible says be anxious for nothing. So I will inhale the peace of God, supernatural peace of God. It actually lowers your heart rate to do that. Yes, it does. I exhale anxiety. See, it feels good right now doing that.
1: <laughs> well, because the gauntlet of anxiety questions, I can tell even now, you, you're you sweating and you're about to run away. It's terrifying.
0: <laughs> yeah, right.
1: Yeah. Um, one of the things we do on this show is we help people understand how their family of origin shows up and influences their leadership. I wonder if you could give us just one trait that you've inherited from your family that's just been a real asset in your leadership, and then one trait that maybe has gotten in the way
0: I think they're for me they're the same trait. um I grew up in a family where my mom was very passive, my dad had all the money, my mom had no power because she had no economic power, and so she had seven kids, and she had to take a lot of abuse, physical and other. So and 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 because of that she was never direct uh forceful or whatever. So I learned to put my issue on the table. I I didn't tolerate madness from people. So my my desire to be independent, I have to also temper it with the fact that I am married to a, a man and men need to feel like they're in charge and I have I have to balance that. I have to give him space to be the man and so I I find that a lot of times I just I am quiet about some things cuz I want him to lead in that regard. So my family of origin t- taught me never be unempowered, save your money, (laughs) but also learn how to say, have you considered rather than have, than you should. So I don't try to boss my husband around, but I'm always reminded that I don't want to be like my mother who never spoke up. I like to speak up. So I I speak up, not because she taught me how, but because I didn't want to be like that because I saw people take advantage of that.
1: That's really good. Thank you. Uh, Another guaranteed source of anxiety for leaders anytime we make a mistake in public or make a mistake in front of the people we're leading, would you be willing to share a recent mistake you've made and what you did to recover from it?
0: Oh, you only want one? (laughs) Yes, I was... um... Oh, here's one. I I am a CPA, and we present to a board. Uh, w- one of my clients, we actually go to their offices and present. And uh, one day, in my effort to consolidate the financials that someone else had done, one of my team members, I'm, I I added the numbers wrong. Oh. You know, and everybody thought I'm just so good at this. You know, I'm just like walk on the water and the numbers were clearly wrong. And I just said, oh, my goodness, look at that. I just you know, I make listen. I'll make a joke out of anything. It's my coping mechanism. So I said, you know, you don't, you don't need to catch me without a calculator <laughs> or something. So I, I said the numbers are wrong. And, um, and that's just it. You see, if you get used to doing that and don't take yourself so seriously. People love that. It's actually more endearing than somebody who's perfect. I learned that yeah. a long time ago. That yeah, timing. Really yeah. yeah, it is. It is. They like is that. It,
1: is there anything going on in your head when that happens? Like, are you? I, do you have to battle any kind of inner critic or anything
0: when you do that? Oh, absolutely. Because I am. I am just. I am so committed to excellence until I have to, in fact, I'm on a, I'm on a special challenge with myself now, not to be critical. I don't care what it is. It's like, they could have done that better because I'm always evaluating how people do things. I was on a zoom call two days ago and, and, and look, and nobody was doing it right. (laughs) Nobody had lighting. Nobody was looking into the camera and there's about 12 people across the thing. And I'm thinking, these are all pastors and zoom is where it is. You got to look into the camera. You got to have lighting. And I'm thinking, why are you getting so worked up about this? (laughs) What's it to you? So you know what I did when the meeting was almost over and and the bishop was about to close the meeting out? I said, do you mind if I just give a 60 second Zoom tutorial real quick? (laughs) And I said to myself, why do you have to fix everything? Because I like people being excellent, so yeah, things go through my head. It's like, okay, I'm not always excellent. there's stuff I do wrong. You see that picture fell over, you know, I have my little thing set for my thing and and right as we started to talk my my little prop with my book supposed to be visible, and I almost right. it, it fell down
1: <laughs> yeah i almost I almost stormed out in rage when I saw that, <laughs> yeah
0: well, that's the kind of thing you know, so you gotta laugh at yourself though, really, if you can't laugh at yourself and if you practice. Acknowledging your errors—that's going to put you in a different, a, a whole different space. You don't have to be perfect. For whom? Who, who, who are these people you're trying to be perfect for anyway? Take back that power. You don't need to give that power to anybody else. Yeah,
1: that's good. Deborah, final question. Uh, when in your life do you feel most fully
0: and completely loved? When my husband is home, we've been married 41 years. He's currently on an eight-day trip by himself just to clear his head and get away from all the business I'm sure that I generate. And so I feel completely loved when he's here. He takes care of everything and, and uh, he treats me like a queen and therefore I try to treat him like a king. But I, I if, if there's nobody else on this earth who loves me, I know that my husband does because he, he shows it in every way. And of course I know that God does. Cause I'm just watching him work me through this crisis. All of my speaking engagements closed, you know, all of that. And uh, so, you know, income shut down, just amazing to watch the provision of God. Just people just call me out of the blues. Like you have any extra inventory? I need a thousand books. I'm like, Who orders a thousand books? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Or I'm, I'm on a zoom call and the lady pays me. I'm like, you don't get paid to be on a zoom call. She said, but I got a grant and I can pay you. I can pay you for this. I'm like, oh my God, it's just amazing. So that's what makes me feel loved by God. His constant provision, his constant protection. And then the fact that he gave me the most wonderful man in the world to be married to.
1: Deborah, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a a delight and uh, we'll have show notes for where people can connect you, but where would you like them to reach out if they want to know more about you?
0: Well they can go to my website, DeborahPegay.com, and that's Deborah, D-E-B-O-R-A-H-P-E-G-U-E-S.com. com. And even if you spell it wrong, you'll find me. Or you can look up my book, Lead Like a Woman, and that'll take you, take me, I'll take you to me as well. But most of all, my book, 30 Days to Tame in Your Tongue, is sold over a million copies. If you type that in, you're gonna find me.
1: <laughs> Excellent. Deborah, thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Steve. It's been wonderful. For more resources, visit stevecuswards.com or missyoualliance.org.